Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The film Downwinders and the Radioactive West has been airing on PBS Utah, and today we're going to review a different part of America's nuclear history. Susan Dawson and Gary Madsen are retired Utah State University professors whose research and congressional testimony contributed to the passage of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. In addition to providing financial compensation to downwinders and uranium miners and others, Rika also acknowledged that Congress apologizes on behalf of the nation to individuals who were involuntarily subjected to increased risk of injury and disease to serve the national security interests of the United States. Professors Dawson's and Madsen's research from 1988 to 2010 focused on radiation exposures to underground and above-ground uranium miners and uranium mill workers. And uh, Susan Dawson uh, is a retired professor of social work at Utah State University. Her research interests included uh, public social policy, occupational environmental health, and uh, some of that research focused on technological disasters related to uranium and coal industries. Uh, Susan Dawson, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having both of us today. Good yeah, morning. It's, it's great to great to be with you. Gary Madsen is a retired professor of sociology at Utah State University. Uh, his main research interests uh, focused on occupational environmental sociology. His interests also include a study of psychosocial effects of working in hazardous conditions. Uh, Gary Madsen, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having us. We appreciate you uh, being with us, and uh, we we. Probably would be together in the studio, but for COVID. So uh, we're doing right. all of our yeah. interviews um, uh, remotely. So we appreciate you uh, you being on with us today. Uh, so we're going to start a bit with uh, Susan Dawson and, uh, and then uh, major focus, and then later on uh, Gary Madsen, although I uh, encourage you both to jump in uh, uh, as we go along. So... Um, sure. Susan Madsen, I wanted to, before we jump into uh, some of your research, um, uh, I wanted to quote from this uh, study that you sent me. Uh, thank you so much. This is from 1996. Both of you were involved in this. Um, where you talk about natural disasters and technological disasters. And this struck me. Um, of course, we know what natural disasters are, right? Technological right. disasters would include what we're going to talk about today. And uh, quoting from the paper, Although there are exceptions, technological calamities, especially when they involve toxic substances, can cause more severe or longer-lasting mental and emotional problems than do natural disasters. That that strikes me. So so well worth oh, talking that's exactly about. Exactly right. <laughs> well, yes, and technological disasters tend to be like, for instance, Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. Um, they tend to have long-lasting effects, whereas if you have a, a natural disaster like a tornado, and, and they can have long-lasting impacts too, but I think the whole latency period, you know, 20, 30 years for some of these diseases to manifest, um, brings along a whole psychological component like heightened anxiety, you know, waiting for some, the other shoe to drop, waiting to be sick, um, Tends to differentiate it from uh, natural disasters. Yeah, um, you also outline here, and this was instructive to me. The the you know we we know that we have nuclear fuel, right? But the nuclear fuel cycle involves four stages: mining, milling, enriching, and fuel fabricating. Uh, so, uh, Susan Dawson, I understand that you you studied, uh, I guess I think interviewed, right, uh, um, miners. Yes. 
And uh, in 1989, uh, there was a groundswell to seek justice and compensation for your, all uranium workers and atomic downwinders. So Utah State University had just awarded me a new faculty research grant to conduct a study of Navajo, they call themselves the Dene, underground uranium workers and their families. And the purpose of that research was to understand the psychosocial and also the financial needs of these families with uncompensated occupational illnesses. So in the summer and fall of 1989, I lived on the Navajo Nation and conducted in-depth interviews with an interpreter of 55 uh, Navajo underground uranium miners and or their widows. I also interviewed uh, 33 key informants, uh, people who know this area, over a four-month period. And I lived in uh, Tuba City and the Shiprock, New Mexico areas. Um, I used a snowball sample because there, there really weren't any lists of workers available to me. So that meant that I would, I would identify um, workers' names through these key informants, and then as I interviewed people, I'd gathered more names. And all, all told, there were 41 underground miners, five mill workers, and two workers who had worked in both the mines and the mills. And they worked on average about 12 years at the sites, and uh, they worked at... Uh, the average miner worked at what they called dog holes, and about four of them during their career. A dog hole is different from a coal mine. A coal mine tends to go deep, have deep seams into the ground, whereas dog holes are, are they tend to be shallower uh, mines that the workers go in, and so they can over their career they can go into um, hundreds of these mines. And gathering the data posed some unique problems for me. Uh, interviewees often had no telephones. They lived in remote areas of the reservation. Uh, they spoke little or no English. And I had been told also that because of taboos against talking about the deceased, that my study probably wouldn't even get off the ground, that no Navajo member would want to speak to me about their deceased loved ones. And this turned out not to be true because family members felt strongly that they wanted their stories told as they felt they'd been betrayed by the U.S. government. They had worked in good faith in the mines to help with the Cold War and believed that the government had their best interests in mind. Now, these workers have been employed from the late 1940s through the 1970s, uh, working prior to the creation of MSHA, uh, which is the Mine Safety and Health Administration, which was created, created in 1969. And because of national security reasons during World War II and the Cold War, the workers were never informed about the dangerous hazards associated with mining and milling. They were not given informed consent, nor what we call risk notification. And these dog hole mines were filled with radon gas. In fact, the highest recorded radiation levels uh, in the United States were in the uranium mines in Marysvale, Utah. Mm. And in fact, many of the women there are known as the Marysvale widows. Workers had no personal protective equipment at that time. There was no mine ventilation and no worker safety education and training. Miners told stories of eating their lunches in the mines covered in uranium ore dust and ingesting it while eating and also drinking mine water. And ingesting uranium dust and exposure to radon gas are two pathways of exposure. Uh, before I began studying the miners, there was strong evidence of a cause and effect relationship between uranium and lung cancer. Studies were conducted in Europe in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Unfortunately, these studies were not considered relevant to U.S. workers uh, when the uranium industry developed in the 1940s. They believed that the workers in the U.S. were different from uh, Europeans. 
Mm. And so the Atomic Energy Commission, known as the AEC, was created in 1946 uh, with two mandates to procure uranium and to regulate the uranium industry. And health and safety regulations were not a high priority among them. There was an ongoing public health service study conducted by Duncan Holliday through the University of Utah, which followed uranium miners to study the long-term health effects of radiation exposure. This radiation study is actually still ongoing today. The study began in 1950 and is controversial. Dr. Victor Archer, who is a prominent uh, U of U epidemiologist, noted that in order to study the miners, the researchers could not disclose any illnesses they contracted were work-related. So if a uranium miner developed lung cancer, he was never informed it was due to his uranium work. As a result, the worker or their family could not claim workers' compensation and or death benefits, or, and they also could not sue the company. And it was argued that if the workers knew of the risks on the job, the labor force would be compromised. So this is a very different work environment than what we have today. And there were other studies in the 60s and 70s which also established a clear relationship between cancer and uranium exposure. Consequently, the, monies, the miners I studied developed what's called oat cell or squamous lung cancer, which is a marker disease, meaning that that disease is clearly related to an occupation, um, in this case, underground uranium mining. And many contracted lung cancer over a latency period, on average about 20 years. The U.S. government mine owners knew that the workers were being exposed, but did not inform them of the hazards of, the, of uh, the mines, and they also did not install ventilation in the mines to reduce radon gas. Companies have stated that it was too costly to install uh, ventilation, and again, were concerned that workers would refuse to work if they thought it was hazardous. Now, the man Navajo miners were important to these studies, as were other members of the Church of Latter-day Saints and other American Indian workers, because it was known that they had a low incidence of cigarette smoking, which could be ruled out for lung cancer in later lawsuits. Several miners also explained that they were forced to enter the mines directly after blasting, while white workers, or Anglos, were not, when the mines were filled with smoke and dust. Workers wore their dust-covered work clothes home for their spouses to wash with the family laundry. This is unheard of today, where work clothes never leave the work site. Because of this, families expressed worry about larger environmental contamination, both from home contamination and the larger environment. Many workers told stories of bringing contaminated materials like barrels and metals home from the mines, as well as uranium ore. One woman explained that she put these pretty yellow rocks, which was the uranium ore, on her kitchen windowsill. Another miner brought home metal stairs, which he affixed to his, excuse me, to his trailer. Overall, the government failed to meet its legal and moral obligations to these workers in three ways. First, the government was negligent by not informing the workers of the inherent risks of uranium mining. Second, the government failed to provide compensation to the workers and their families for the deaths and illnesses of the uranium workers. And third, the ecological damage created by the mining and milling processes was not addressed for an extended period of time, creating further health hazards. Now, this study provided personal histories of exposures on the job and in the homes of these workers. This really hadn't been documented before in this detail. 
So as a result, I was invited to give congressional testimony in the Navajo Nation regarding the proposed Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, known as RECA, in March of 1990. Of the many people who testified that day, including former Secretary Stuart Udall, I was the only one who mentioned uranium mill workers. After I testified, a group of Navajo mill workers approached me and asked if I uh, could have the mill workers included in the legislation. For the 1990 RECA bill, which was passed in uh, October of that year, it proposed only that underground uranium miners be eligible for a one-time payment of $100,000, nuclear test site workers $75,000, and the atomic downwinders $50,000. Congress was the only remedy left after legal options were unsuccessful. Uh, the courts had ruled that the government could not be sued due to the discretionary function uh, portion of the Toxic Torts Claim Act. So it was not until 2000 that RICA was amended and included mill workers, truck haulers, and above-ground miners, and they also received the one-time $100,000 payment. Now, one other point I'd like to make before Gary gets on is that the Navajo and other American Indians found the criteria for compensation when it when it was available, they found the paperwork very difficult. Um, many of them did not read English. Many of them did not write. And so they were often deemed ineligible for compensation because they could not fill out the forms. The majority of the applicants were traditional Navajo elders. They were often born at home, and they were married in traditional ceremonies. So they didn't have marriage licenses or birth certificates, which were required by the Department of Justice, who, are the, who administered RECA. Through advocacy then, in 1999, DOJ streamlined the RECA process, and the Navajo Nation also established the Office of uh, Navajo Uranium Workers to assist claimants with their applications. And, and that office is still open today. Wow, that's uh, that's just amazing. Uh, we'll uh, have a couple of follow-up questions, and then we'll go to break, and then we'll bring uh, Gary on to talk about uh, the mill workers. Sure. Um, but the, the the location is, I mean, it's very local, right? You mentioned Marysvale. This is Colorado Plateau, and this is essentially right. the, the Four Corners states, right, the, where this was going on. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important point. Uh, and I did not interview, uh, that, that original study was only on the Navajo Nation, but when I had heard about the Mary's Fails situation, it was just dumbfounding the levels of radiation that those workers, those men were exposed to. Yeah, that's just amazing. I might add that um, uh, this Four Corners region was a uh, really a pivotal area in, in, in identifying uranium sources and developing mines and mills and you know when you take utah um uh arizona new mexico colorado uh, colorado uh at one time or another they had uh four uh 40 uh operating mills some of them went for a while and then shut down and so on and uh there were literally thousands of mines uh a few big ones, but a, a lot of them were these dog hole mines that Susan talked about. And I believe on the Navajo Nation itself, they've identified over 1,200 mines, and, and certainly they've been doing remediation on these mines for a number of years, and, and they're, not, they're not through yet. Mm. Well, one thing I would like yeah. to add, if I have time, is that um, many children like to play in those mines, 
once they were mm. mucked out. And uh, so we, we heard a lot of reports how kids grew up playing in those mines, and, and also livestock would go in those mines in the winter to stay uh, warm and in the summer to stay cool. So we have a larger environmental contamination area, um, problem uh, in addition to the workers being exposed. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more questions. We'll go to break and then bring Gary on. But um, um, uh, these were, uh, I, I get it's, I guess I'm, I'm being, I'm feeling flabbergasted. That's why you're, I'm being inarticulate here. Uh, because it never fails to strike you're, me. But <laughs> the, the, you're not inarticulate. The, this was, <laughs> this was uh, essentially, could you call it a cover up? You know, the, 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 the companies, the government. They knew the hazards, right? And for oh, various yeah. reasons, yeah. They, they didn't fact, tell the workers. One of the issues I have is that it's, I mean, it's wonderful that RICO was passed and that everyone is compensated. But the companies were, were never held liable. I mean, if, if someone murders somebody, that person, you want that person apprehended and brought to justice. But in this case, no one really was brought to justice. Stuart, you Excuse me, Stuart Udall and others brought that case, uh, the, uh, the Allen case, um, to, to try to get compensation for the downwinders. And, and no one was held culpable, not the United States government. They apologized, but no one took responsibility. So in that sense, I think it was a, a cover-up. And, uh, uh, and yeah, these workers... Yeah, go ahead. The workers were not given a very important concept in um, compensation and occupational illness is risk notification. A worker today must be notified about risks so that then that worker can make a determination, you know, should I work in that industry? Is it safe for me? Uh, these, these workers were not afforded that. They were told, you know, you're doing, you're helping the United States government, you're, you're, um, and that this is, a, they just assumed it was a safe environment. And I think that's a very important point about these workers. Yeah, let, let me add one thing, too. Uh, you know, we, they, we mentioned, or Susan mentioned, that the, uh, there were European studies that were done. Um, in uh, Germany and what is now the Czech Republic, uh, mountainous areas, uh, they had they had been involved in uranium mining for a long period of time. And in the um, late 1800s and the early 1900s, very good research was done in this area, which really showed the connection between the workers and the workers dying of lung cancer and their exposure to uh, radiation in the mines. Well, the big question is why didn't this become a red flag when we're talking about uh, the 1940s and 50s? Uh, this, these publications were known, uh, and, and this is a, a very sad kind of a situation, as you, uh, Tom, as you mentioned. In, in fact, uh, some uh, researchers said that there were genetic, genetic differences, excuse me, between the European workers and the American workers, and so therefore those studies weren't applicable to American workers. Yeah, I guess a very clever way to, to dismiss them out of hand, right? Um, right. Uh, so um, I just want to mention this before we go to break, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, after, um, and Gary will fill us in on the, the, the mill worker side and the surveys done there. Um, 
but this what once workers knew, right? It is many years later. Once workers knew the the dangers of uranium, uh, mm-hmm. then there's there's I can't uh, I I just can't uh, you know understand the stress that they must have been under, uh, waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? Um, yeah. So, oh, definitely. So that that's that's yes. that's trauma right there. So, and you talk about that. So, anyway, we'll uh, take a break now. We're talking uh, with uh, Susan Dawson and Gary Madsen, the retired USU professors, and uh, their uh, research uh, focused on radiation exposures to underground and above ground uranium miners and uranium mill workers, and. Uh, their, uh, it also work. Uh, involved yeah, uh, the transportation that transportation. the colors too. Okay, yeah. yeah, we can talk about that as we go along as well. Um, and and they they were their studies uh, were among those uh, helpful in uh, the passage of the uh, Radiation Exposure and Compensation Act. We've been talking about that as well. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, uh, you may have caught the film Downwinders in the Radioactive West. It's been airing on PBS Utah. That recounts uh, part of this history, of course, that we maybe are more familiar uh, with than the subject we're talking about today, which is a somewhat related but a different uh, part of America's nuclear history. Uh, Susan Dawson and Gary Madsen are retired Utah State University professors whose research and congressional testimony contributed to the passage of the Radiation Exposure and Compensation Act. Uh, their research from 1988 to 2010 focused on radiation exposures to underground and above-ground uranium miners, uranium mill workers, and uranium transportation workers. We're talking with them today. Uh, you, If you have a question or comment, you can get that to us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, so we'll turn uh, next to uh, Gary Madsen. Uh, I think uh, so. We, we talked uh, earlier with uh, Susan Dawson about uh, uranium miners. Another part of the process of, of getting uranium into fuel, nuclear fuel, right, is is the milling process. Uh, so I believe you've done you've done research uh, on that side of it. Yes, I uh, I'd like to tell you how I got involved in this uh, process. Um, when Susan was doing her field work uh, with uh, in- interviewing underground uranium miners, uh, I was working on another project. But I became acquainted with her work and uh, uh, visited her on the Navajo Nation, uh, and it was a it was like walking into a different world, really, in terms of uh, you know it's largely rural, and uh, as Susan identified, um, if you want to contact people, you have to do it through um, a, a snowball kind of an arrangement. Uh, but at that time, I uh, was interested in, in photographing some of the, the uh, people and the miners themselves, uh, their families, and the larger uh, environment in which they lived. In fact, um, I photographed a few uh, workers, families, and even home sites. And uh, in 1992, I became available uh, to do uh, research in this area, and and luckily uh, um, we procured uh, another grant, and we started this uh, second set of studies that focused on the uranium uh, mill workers. Now, 
I think it's important to, to recognize why did they focus on the miners to begin with? Well, there are many reasons for it, but the, uh, one of the main reasons was they believed the underground um, uh, environment in which miners worked was the most dangerous. You know, you're talking about drilling, you're talking about mucking, you're talking about really releasing a tremendous amount of radiation in, in uh, this kind of environment. Uh, but many believe that uh, the above-ground millwork was much safer. And so there were a few studies that were done uh, in this particular area, but they, they really were, were pretty much ignored when it came to, uh, you know, really pushing to have the RECA compensation for the um, mill workers and those who, ha uh, the truck haulers who hauled the ore from the mines to the mills. So uh, when we uh, got the funding, we decided to start working together and that began our 20-year experience. Uh, and I don't know how many people where you have a husband-wife team who have worked mm -hmm. together that long. But it, <laughs> uh, it was a, I, I've got to admit, it was a great experience. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're very happy that we were able to do that. Now, uh, the milling process actually involves uh, several stages. And it's important to recognize that the raw uranium ore is first trucked to the mill where it's crushed. And they have crushers there. Well, these crushers, unless you, unless you have adequate protective uh, equipment and so on, is, a, is an extremely dusty area quite often. And so that's one area of exposure. Then the, uh, this crushed uranium is sent through a, a, a chemical process, and that's to leach out the uranium and, and to uh, concentrate it. And then, and this is a, a wet process, uh, that's another reason why so many of the mills were developed, you know, along, for example, the Colorado River or the Green River the Rio Puerto in New Mexico and other places. Um, and then it has to be dried, and they develop giant ovens uh, to dry this, and uh, you ended up with what was called uranium oxide, which is over 90% pure, uh, but it has to be uh, basically cooked, and then it's barreled. Well, in the cooking and the barreling process, you've got to be extremely careful, and that was another area where personal protective equipment was uh, not a high priority. Uh, so I think that's an important process, you know, to, to uh, consider. Now, we did two studies um, that tended to emphasize um, two different groups, actually. One was the uranium mill workers and truck haulers. And the second uh, was a, a group that included people beyond just the millwork uh, and included um, people who had worked in the mines, uh, the mills, 
truck hauling, and even office personnel. And this last study was entirely made up of women, uh, almost all of whom had worked after 1970. And it's, it's uh, another important feature to consider in this particular respect. The RECA compensation only includes people who worked in the mines, the mills, truck hauling, um, who worked before 1971. And the reason for that is that the government was uh, basically the sole purchaser and uh, uh they decided that they were going to pull out of the industry in terms of uh, the 1970s and 80s. And because of that, they uh, did not uh, identify RECA as going beyond that. Unfortunately, there were thousands of workers who worked after then, and they are not even open for that. And uh, this... Uh, third group that we dealt with were entirely women. In the 1970s, they began hiring women production workers, too, not just working in the offices and so on. So we had women who did drilling, who did uh, crushing, who did uh, in the mills and the mines and so on, and they are not eligible at all. And so there's a push now to try to... Uh, Get them included. So, as with the you know the mining work for us, there were a lot of people getting sick and and dying, and we did a health analysis in this particular area. And uh, when we interviewed the the millers and the truck haulers and so on, they identified some of the very similar kinds of problems that were happening with the miners. Um, lung cancer, uh, non-cancerous pulmonary diseases like COPD uh, and uh, silicosis and other kinds of problems. And, and that's an important area that was considered in terms of the compensation. Now, uh, in terms of this latency period, and this includes the miners and the mill workers and the truck haulers, and uh, this, regardless of what particular occupation you had, if you've got a 20-year average latency period and you only find out that you worked in a dangerous environment in terms of getting these illnesses, uh, a lot of these people had tremendous anxiety and many of them depression over the, you know, when when's the next shoe going to drop? And so this, this also was something that we identified, the very prominent problems with anxiety and depression. Um, and so that's an extremely important aspect that really wasn't covered by, you know, the previous, epidemiologic research. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very good point. Um, let me read from this. This is a study from 1996. Uh, I think you both were involved in this, uh, studying mill workers. Um, one, uh, one person responded, I didn't really have any knowledge of the danger part of it. 
I just thought it was a good job because it paid more money than my other job. I didn't know about the dangers until people started talking about cleaning up the tailings. People started talking about dangers of what we were exposed to. And at that point, then as you say, then then you probably start worrying about, uh, you know, the other shoe's going to drop. Yeah. Right. And, and in fact, we've written a paper on this. It was a very, we thought it was a very interesting response of the uh, the Navajo or, and the other uh, Indian groups um, versus the Anglos, because the Navajo started organizing it right away. And uh, you know, they felt betrayed by the government, so they started having uh, um, support groups and uh, talking about it. They were very active in going to Washington on legislation. So they had a real group orientation, whereas the Anglos had a very individual orientation. They said, well, if I should have worn a mask, <laughs> rather than realizing the company should have provided them with personal protective equipment. And so they also they and they also just they didn't have a group orientation at all about this. Very individualized. It was really interesting to to uh, compare the two groups in their response to this. Yeah, that that is interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about um you know how the miners and and mill workers brought this home. Uh right? And and unknowingly for the most part, right? Oh. Um I just, inter- Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it's very important, um, this larger environmental contamination. We interviewed a woman in uh, Salt Lake, because there was a mill in the Salt Lake area, and she talked about how every week she would, you know, take her husband's clothes, and she'd wash all his clothes, which were covered in yellow cake, in her washing machine. And she said after she was done washing his clothes, she could take her hand and muck out this dirt, this uranium dirt. I said, well, what did you do with it? She said, well, I just put it out in my garden. <laughs> mm. So I said, well, I said, anything happened after that? And she said, no, but now I'm very worried that I've contaminated my yard. Yeah, and, and, wow. Yeah. And also one person had talked about how their husband, her pillowcases were yellow because he would sweat um, in the summertime and he had so much yellow cake in the pores in his head that he would sweat out yellow cake, and it would the residue would be on her pillowcase. Yeah. Oh, the- I, I have another one that uh, was really quite shocking. We were interviewing a former mill worker, and in kind of the middle of the interview, um, he said, uh, let, let me tell you something, or let me ask you a question. He said, um, uh, when he was, I guess he was working near uh, Yellow Cake, and he said, when I went to the grocery store, he said, uh, it was easy to identify that I had worked at the mill because he said Yellow Cake would be uh, caked on my ears. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, this isn't even laughable, but it's... Uh, you know, it's it's a sad kind of a situation. He said, yeah, he said uh, people would come up and say, oh, you must work in the mill. Well, that was one way they could easily tell. Yeah. And then in Moab, we were, uh, uh, one of the respondents said, would you be interested in some photographs? And we said, sure. And so she, she said, I had been to the dump, and I found this a Ziploc bag with these photos. And she said, I think it's of the mill here in Moab, but we couldn't be sure. And at, 
it was a whole, I don't know, maybe 30 photographs of the millers inside the mill. They showed one man, uh, and we produced this at a congressional hearing. Uh, it ended up being evidence for the mill workers. It showed, for instance, one uh, miller who was working in the kitchen where they um, start drying the yellow cake. It was so hot in there, he didn't have a shirt on and uh, many other photos like that. Today, that whole area would be enclosed. He would be in a full respirator suit. There would be a negative ion door that would not let air into that. But that whole area was open, you know. And uh, a friend of mine who's been involved in reclamation said when they tore one mill down on the Navajo Nation, they took down a false ceiling, and yellow cake just poured out of that false ceiling. So they, they just weren't protected. And they didn't have the uh, um, occupational controls that we have today. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll uh, have another uh, 10 minutes or so uh, to talk about this. Uh, more to talk about here. I want, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, another part of uh, your studies, uh, which has to do with the fact that many of these workers, uh, uh, logically enough, live pretty close to either the mine or the, or the mill operation, yes. right? Yes, yes. And yes. uh, so that's another way that uh, the entire family uh, got exposed. Uh, so we'll talk about this more following a break. We're talking with uh, Gary Madsen and Susan Dawson. They're retired Utah State University professors. And uh, their research from 1988 to 2010 focused on radiation exposures to underground and above-ground uranium miners, uranium mill workers, and uranium transportation workers. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about a very important part of America's nuclear history. Of course, the Downwinders get a lot of press. And in fact, there's a film, Downwinders, in the Radioactive Press, Radioactive West, rather. It's been airing on PBS Utah, an important part of the history. We're focusing on a different part of this history. Uh, uh, and we're talking with Susan uh, Dawson and Gary Madsen. They're retired Utah State University professors whose research and congressional testimony contributed to passage of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Uh, they uh, focused on radiation exposures to underground and above-ground uranium miners, uranium mill workers, and uranium transportation workers. We have another uh, about nine minutes left in this conversation. By the way, at the end of the uh, program today, we're going to feature uh, the latest, uh, John Taylor, Dateline St. George Commentary. That'll be at the end of the program. You're welcome to join this conversation with your comment or question by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so I just want to read another, uh, just an excerpt from one of the workers. This is from this 1996 study. Uh, this worker said, The mill sold me three 55-gallon drums for hauling water. Drums were stored among uranium ore. Dust was all over. The company uh, brought in high-grade ore from another town. I filled drums were contaminated with radiation. No one checked them. A lot of guys bought these drums. That's just one example, right, of... Uh, you're in a uranium environment, you're living close to it, especially the Navajos understand, and uh, and so not only the workers, but the families being exposed. Oh, yes. We knew uh, one truck hauler in the Moab area, and uh, his widow told, uh, excuse me, his widow uh, told us that he would stockpile uh, uranium ore before he'd take it to the Atlas Mill in Moab, and uh, she said we would just have it in our backyard. And she, I remember she looked at me and she said, do you think that's dangerous to us? 
And I, I said, well, I think it would be important to have someone uh, check out your yard and check you out, too. Um, I mean, it was we were just flabbergasted, too, at some of the stories we heard. Uh, one of the things that really hit me was, uh, I guess, the fact that you know kids will be kids, right? And so kids would mm-hmm. kids would play in these areas. Yes, they would. And uh, the other problem with that is that in many of these cases, uh, where we're looking at at the different mills and the different mines, uh, a lot of people uh, lived very close, and their kids went over to the. Uh, uh, mill area, uh, and in those days, a lot of it wasn't fenced in to keep them out, and they played on these, uh, the uh, mill tailings and the mine waste. And so these people are very concerned about that, too. And I, I think this brings up another point that, you know, what what do we do about these particular problems? The environmental conditions that have been left that are related to this uh, uranium mining, milling, and truck hauling uh, are still affecting these communities. A lot of it hasn't been cleaned up yet. Uh, They've been working on it for a long period of time. A lot of it's Superfund projects, and what happens is, you know, Congress doesn't appropriate enough money for it, and so they hold it off again. Uh, Those of us who live in Utah... Uh, notice what what time it took to to uh, deal with the uh, trucking away of the mill tailings around the Atlas Mill that's right across the river from uh, Moab. Uh, so we just have about uh, five minutes left in the program. I'd like uh, each of you to maybe, uh, as you were doing there, Gary Madsen, look to the future. Um, and we'll start with uh, Susan Dawson. What, um, I guess, a lot remains to be done. Yes, and, and I think, you know, RECA, first of all, uh, will end in 2022, and we're hoping that RECA will be extended. Also, we'd like to see the post-1971 workers uh, be considered, and there are people advocating on their behalf to have, so that they can receive some form of compensation. I, I don't know if this is okay, but I have two phone numbers for uh, if any of your uh, listeners would like to call in if they're interested in applying for compensation. Y- yes, Would certainly. that be okay? Yes. Okay, the first one is the National Cancer Benefits Center, and their number is 1-800-414-4384. That's one 800 Four one four four three two eight. The other number is the Office of Navajo Uranium Workers, and their number is five zero five three six eight one two six zero. That's five zero five three six eight one two six zero. And that was the Office of uh, Navajo Uranium Workers. Yes, that's in Shiprock, New Mexico. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll put those on our website as well, so people can reference reference those. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to mention too. Uh, so far, the uh, RICA compensation is just under two point five billion dollars in compensation. There are also uh, medical benefits and other things too, but we're talking about 
uh, almost $2.5 billion. And that includes uh, almost 38,000 recipients. And certainly they're, they're still coming in now. Uh, and what you do for compensation is you have to prove your work experience and also have one of the uh, uh, compensable illnesses that, are, that have been identified by research to uh, be related to your exposures. Well, the, one of the problems you have with people like the Navajo, people in rural areas and so on, they've, they've had difficulty in, you know, getting access to the uh, medical technology in order to prove their illnesses. Uh, a lot on the Navajo Nation is just what you would call family medicine, with, you know, where you don't have specialists in this area. So, you know, when, when you have to leave the, the reservation in order to uh, be looked at by uh, the proper medical uh, professionals to look at these diseases, that can also be a tremendous problem. They go often to Albuquerque or, or sometimes to Denver. Mm-hmm. And Salt Lake, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we're just about out of time here. A uh, good place to end the discussion. Very important discussion. Uh, we'll put those phone numbers up um, on our website and uh, places where people uh, can can get help. And uh, we've mentioned here at the end of the program some, some things yet left undone. People can, of course, call their congressman or senator to uh, to help push that along if they'd like. That would be great. That would be great, yes. Um, we've well, been thank talk- you for having us. Yes. Oh, that's very nice that you had us. No, oh, th- thank you so much. Susan Dawson and Gary Madsen, retired Utah State University professors. Their research focused on radiation exposures to underground and above ground uranium miners, mill workers, and transportation workers. Uh, so thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we hope you'll tune in for uh, the beginning of the uh, Senate impeachment trial for uh, former President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we'll have coverage on air. We'll also have coverage uh, on our website, upr.org. And uh, preceding that on Access Utah, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to be talking with the USU political science professor Damon Can. We'll give a preview to how the process works and uh, all the politics uh, surrounding this and uh, anything else that you'd like to uh, call and ask or comment on. That's our subject tomorrow. Damon Can will join us, and we hope you'll join us then. Now, to end the program, uh, we have our monthly uh, commentary, our Dateline St. George commentary from commentator John Taylor. My blue hockey puck has two full-time jobs. It's a paperweight for trash, It's also a moral compass guiding my day. The puck isn't slap shot material. It's a plastic memento of my service with the Rotary Club of Fresno, California. But what's emblazoned inside is a reminder that no matter how messed up the world gets, honesty and honorable behavior are the North Star. The puck lists the Rotary's so-called four-way test. The test is, in fact, a good conduct pledge taken by millions of Rotary Club members worldwide, including a number of U.S. presidents, among them Donald Trump. Here's what it says. Of the things we think, say, or do, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? 
Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? End quote. Can't you hear the rebuttals? That's a nice thing to say, Pollyanna, but this is real life. And don't forget, in God we trust, all others pay cash. I think about truth and trust, and Mary Poppins comes to mind. Most of us make too many pie-crust promises, vows easily made, easily broken. Marriages, mortgages, God, family, flag, and sports teams. We promise our love, credit rating, and good name as though they were lottery scratchers. We lubricate our moral benchmarks with a convenient WD-40 of dishonesty and deception to make truth to be what we want it to be. We shed, then shred, our commitments, like the world had a confetti shortage. When I moved to the big sky country of Utah in 2018, I did something unthinkable for a native New Yorker. I relied on word of mouth endorsements. And if a repairman or salesman promised something, I considered his word golden until it wasn't. And I didn't expect that every task had to be completed in a New York minute. I also recalled my mother's exhortation. If you can't say something good about someone, don't say anything at all. And I chose to shun the dark autopsy of humanity given by the Harry Potter character Voldemort, who said, there is no good and evil, there is only power, and those too weak to seek it. There may not be an immaculate good, but the rotary puck test is a useful Fitbit to strengthen moral character and good neighborliness. For Dateline St. George, this is John Taylor wishing you a joyful day.